Well, good morning, church. I hope you are getting excited about this time of the year. For some of you, it, it's spring break, and um, obviously you are not one of the families that decided to go somewhere, so I'm glad you decided to stay here. Um, some people are off um, taking a little break, and it's good for them, and um, thankful that they are able to uh, enjoy that. Uh, but today is Palm Sunday, and so we gather here to look at God's Word and celebrate Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and uh, it's the week before Easter, and it's one of the most, I'm going to say, one of the most joyful days recorded to us in Scripture, okay, although it does not match the joy of Jesus' resurrection, which we'll celebrate next week, and I hope you're excited about that. Uh, Easter next week, Resurrection Sunday. I read once um, that on Palm Sunday, this, um, this little boy, he had a sore throat, had to stay home from church. So his family went to church, and he's home, and his parents and family came home, and they're all excited. They're carrying palm branches, and the little boy looked at him and asked, you know, what were the palm branches for? And uh, the, the father said, well, we waved him at Jesus, you know, we waved him at Jesus when he walked by. The boy just dropped his head, very disappointed, and he goes, "Once you know it, the day I'm sick, Jesus shows up. Well, I believe every Sunday Jesus shows up. Amen? And I pray he does this morning through his word. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11 is what we're going to be looking at. This event uh, in Jesus, he's entering Jerusalem on a donkey. We call that Palm Sunday. It includes a week, think about this, a week, a second cleansing of the temple, um, some of his final teachings, the institution of the Lord's Supper. It also includes the arrest, trial, crucifixion of Jesus. Spoiler alert. Um, it also includes the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we'll talk about next week, but I thought I'd give that heads up. Okay. And the final week of Jesus, I'm going to tell you something, is so important, so important that when you look at the Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, the books that can, uh, include the stories of Jesus Christ, okay, the Gospels, they give an incredible amount of attention to the very last week of Jesus. Matter of fact, you know, you think about this, Jesus lived to be 33. His active ministry included three years, but large portions of this book, of those books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Focus on the last eight days of Jesus. So I'll throw this on the screen just sort of give you an idea of how this worked. Matthew uses 25% of his book to cover those eight days. Mark uses about 33%, Luke about 20%, and John gives half of his book to the last eight days of Jesus. So together there are 89 chapters in the Gospels. And but 29 and a half of them, so it's about one-third, 33% of them account for what happened between the triumphant entry and the resurrection. That's a lot of attention. And amazingly, you think about this, these events were planned before the foundation of the world. Before God ever created the earth, the universe, the expansion of the universe, he planned this. These eight days. He knew that we would need salvation from sin and, and from a wrath of God, and it depended on this moment, these days. 
So each of the Gospels record the event that we focus on today, Palm Sunday, or the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. It was not spontaneous. It was not some kind of impulsive action by Jesus. It was planned out. So let's look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and as soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. Now, let's remember this. Okay? Jesus is God in the flesh. Okay? He is God in the flesh. Limited by his earthly presence, but he is still God. So his power as we've discovered through the miracle series, is incredible. It's unmatchable. His teachings are profound. When you look through his teachings and you just look at him, you think, wow, who teaches like this? Who is able to look at the lilies or the birds and be able to relate and take those stories and put them into truth that we need to hear? He knew what people thought before they said it. He knew it was coming before what was coming knew what was coming. He was that good. He is God. He knew the religious leaders were going to arrest him. He knew they were going to condemn him, mock him, scourge him, and deliver him to the Romans for crucifixion. He knew that. Matter of fact, let me take you back a chapter. The prior chapter, uh, 21, Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 and 19, we read this. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately he told them what was going to happen to him. So he pulled his disciples aside before he even got to this triumphant entry. He pulls them aside and says, this is what's going to happen. Listen, verse 18. We're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man, that's me, will be betrayed to the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die. They will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Jesus is God in the flesh. He knows what's going to happen. He planned this long before the foundation of the earth. We read in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that Jesus came to do what? What was the mission of Jesus Christ? I don't know if you didn't know this, but let's get this straight right now. Jesus had a mission. If you know every business, even churches, everybody has mission statements and vision statements. Okay? The mission of Jesus Christ was to seek and save those who are lost. He spells it out clearly in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The only way to save us, he finds us, he seeks us, then he wants to save us. The only way to save us is a sacrifice. A sacrifice meant death on the cross. So why did Jesus ride into Jerusalem? To die. To put it very bluntly, to die. He knew what laid before him. He knew what was coming. He understood what he was walking into. He knew the chief priests, the Pharisees, were plotting to kill him. But he had the courage to enter Jerusalem. This was his mission. 
to enter it in a public way, most public way, as possible. This brought a lot of attention to him. We read that Jesus told his disciples to go find a, a donkey and a colt. Now, if you look through the other stories, Matthew and Mark, Luke, John, you look through all the Gospels, you see that Jesus rides upon the younger of these animals, the colt. He told his disciples how they would find these animals. He instructed, bring them both. Not just one, but bring them both. And Jesus rode in on the colt, not its mother. Mark and Luke say the animal is so young it had never been ridden before. And if you've grown up on a farm or around horses, you know that an unbroken animal to try to ride on is basically impossible. Jesus rode on the unbroken colt. The mother probably right next to it. Maybe it kept it calm as it rode into this huge crowd, right? To bring some kind of peace from a noisy crowd. Now I want you to think about this. For three years, the disciples have marveled at Jesus. They've listened to his great stories and teachings. They saw all of his incredible works, his wonders, the miracles that he performed. They've seen all this, right? They call him Master. Because they truly follow and obey him. See, you can't call somebody your master unless you obey them. If you don't obey your master, they're not your master. That's why coaches look for athletes that are coachable. Because if you won't listen to your coach, that's not really your coach. See, if you're listening to your parents more than you're listening to the coach, your parents become your coach. See, you listen and obey the one that you Respect, and if that's the person you're respecting at the moment or the one you want to follow, that's when you obey, then that's your master. The disciples obeyed their master, Jesus Christ. He healed the sick, he walked on water, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And Matthew chapter 11, I want to read this verse to you. We learned Jesus gave authority to his disciples to do this. Jesus called his 12 disciples together, gave them authority to cast out evil spirits until every kind of disease and illness. Jesus, at this point in time, says, I'm going to give you some of the same authority that I have been given by my Heavenly Father. I'm giving it to you. Now you go and do these things. And they went and they did those things. Why? Because Jesus was their master. They listened to him. They obeyed him. Now we fast forward. And Jesus says, I've got another assignment for you. This is awesome. What's this assignment going to be? We're heading into Jerusalem. It's the week of the Passover. It's a huge celebration. The place is going to be buzzing with tons of people. You sense something big is going on with Jesus. You believe that the task he is going to ask you to do is like getting the lead role in the play. It's getting the starting role in the team. It's getting the promotion and the job lead that you're thinking, I'm going to be out here in front of everybody. I'm going to do something pretty big, something special, right? And so the anticipation grows. And finally, he speaks. He's thinking, what is your request? And he says, go get a donkey. Bring it to me. That's it. Go get a donkey. Bring it to me. Okay, now, you got to be kidding me, right? I mean, if you were the disciples, especially Peter. I mean, Peter, James, John, those guys, I mean, they're really tight, really close to Jesus. They've seen all kinds of things. And he's looking and goes, I need you guys to go give me a donkey. Bring it back so I can ride it. That's it? That seems pretty mundane. That seems pretty too simple, right? We're going to go find a stubborn animal in a smelly barn. 
step in some stuff that we don't like to step in. We try to avoid it, and we're going to walk it through the streets, streets where everybody can see us, and we don't even know. And to top it off, you want us to just take it without asking. We're talking Grand Theft Donkey, okay? This could be bad, all right? Now, back if they had video games, it would be Grand Theft Auto, it would be Grand Theft Donkey. Could you see kids playing that game, right? Now, this doesn't sound like a job that I really want, right? So maybe we ask the question, why me? Why do you want me to do this job? Why not somebody else? Did they refuse? Did they complain? Did they find a kid out there, walk outside and find a kid outside and say, hey, um, we're not good at this. Hey, there's a donkey in town. You need to go find it. And did they pass it off to somebody else? No, they went as they were told. They found the donkey in the colt, as was said. They simply obeyed Jesus. So I bring back that question. Do we? Do we simply obey Jesus? When God asks you to do something which seems so simple, so mundane, so below you, do we obey him? Do we understand and realize that maybe, just maybe, it's not about us? Maybe it's not about us getting the spotlight, just having the big job. These disciples did not realize that they were participating in the fulfillment of a prophecy that Zechariah had made 500 years earlier. They didn't realize that. Little did they know that this mundane mission would be recorded in history that we're reading today, 2,000 years later, and would be read over and over and over and told about for years prior to the Holy Week observance. Little did they know that their master was going to ride this donkey in like a king into Jerusalem. They didn't know this. This mundane task brought about huge returns. Not to them, but for the world to come. So here's a question we need to ask ourselves. And I want you to ask this question. Is Jesus really your master? Is he really your master? If you call yourself a Christian... Christians are Christ followers. We follow Jesus Christ. He is our master. Is he really your master? Do you really obey him? Have you sensed God asking you to do things before and you do them? Or do you like, no, not today. I don't know if I can. If Jesus is truly your master, you'll accept the not-so-fun assignments. It's like the star athlete or the musician or the actor. You know, we want the big parts, the main role, the big assignment. And it's, if it's awesome and cool, I'll do it. But if it's dirty or pick up the trash, clean the toilet, talk to the kid who sits by himself, maybe not today. Why can't somebody else do that? I'll never forget, I was on a trip with was a group called Youth for Christ. This was right when I graduated from college. I moved here to Ohio in 1989. And some friends of mine who worked for Youth for Christ in Indiana said, Hey, Rex, we're taking a group of kids spring break. Would you come and serve with us? I'm thinking, let me think about that. A week in Florida? Yeah, okay. I've had enough of Northwest Ohio in the winter. I'm ready to go. So I went, and we had a great time. But one of the things that we stayed at the hotel with all these kids, and at the end of the week, some of these kids really trashed their rooms. And I know how I was raised. And I'll never forget the kids in this one room because I walked by and I looked in and I thought, whoa, that is going to be a lot of cleanup, boys. They're like, oh, that's the maid's job. That's not our job. 
And I was like, ooh. I won't tell you how things went from there, but I'm just going to say this. I wasn't raised that way. I make the mess, I clean up the mess. You make the mess, you clean up the mess. But sometimes people are like, no, that's somebody else's job. But what if God says that's your job? What if he gives you this task that you think is just so below you, but God says, but I want you to do that job. Would you do it? What if God's calling you today to give up your fame and start doing the mundane? Like I said, you know, you've been, if you've been watching a lot of March Madness basketball right now, we all want to be the one who takes the last second shot or the, just the rim-shaking dunk, right? But what if God says, I just want you to set the screen? Now, I don't know if you noticed, we've got a church basketball team, okay? And I think I'm the oldest one on the team. I think I've shared this with you that it has been quite an adventure. And I'll, I'll say this, next year I'm recruiting somebody to take my place, okay? Somebody like Jared Strength that can just, you know, right, do the job. Yeah. Here's, here's the thing. I've discovered about, oh, I don't know, two months into it, finally figured out, got over my stubborn self, saying, I'm not the guy that can drive and shoot. Maybe back in the day, not anymore. What can I do? I can set screens and be on the floor and try to make a pass to somebody, help somebody else out, right? Doesn't sound very fun and exciting, but that's my role. Sometimes it's hard to accept the so-called lower role, right? But what if God is asking to do this? No task, if directed by God, lacks size or reference. Is Jesus really your master? If he is, we will fetch the donkey. That's the first question I want to ask you this morning. When I'm reading through this story, that's one of the first things that jumps out at me, thinking something so small, something so mundane. Will you go fetch the donkey? If Jesus is really your master, you will do what he asks you to do. Okay, Let's read on, um, starting in verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt to him. They threw his, their garments over the colt. He sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. And the entire city of Jerusalem was in uproar as he entered. Who is this? they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, Jesus came into Jerusalem with a lot of humility. I mean, yet with appropriate dignity as well. Instead of coming in on a horse, like a conquering general, like he could, he came on a colt, as was customary for royalty. He came to Jerusalem as the Prince of Peace. And, and what, again, is amazing is that Jesus never rode an animal that we can never find in history, right? We read through all. He walked everywhere. We read through all the Bible. We never see him riding anything. And this is the one moment, the one moment, he comes riding in on a colt, the Prince of Peace. Jesus deliberately worked to fulfill prophecy. Zechariah, as I told you earlier, 9-9 says this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly 
and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In that moment, Jesus could have walked, but he goes, you know what? I'm going to fulfill what Zechariah said 500 years ago. And he rode in on that donkey. On a day or to come, and we don't know when it's going to be, but in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, it says, Jesus will come riding in on a white horse. It will be a much different day. He'll be on that horse to judge and to make war. And it'll be a different day. At one time, Jesus would hush his disciples. Those he healed. They'd want to tell everybody, Jesus, no, 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 don't tell anybody my name. Don't tell anybody what I just did. He was keeping his identity secret. It was, as he would sometimes say, it's not my time. Once quiet, his messianic claim was a secret. Now Jesus makes a statement for everyone to see using a symbolic action. He didn't have to say, here comes the king. His disciples didn't walk along saying, here comes the king, make way for the king. He didn't have to say anything. It was a symbolic action. Matter of fact, you look through the Old Testament, uh, especially Isaiah. These prophets did a lot of crazy things. A lot of more actions. They did things to show the people what was going to happen. Jesus showed everybody what was happening. The Messiah is here. And as they made their way down the, the steep descent of Mount Olives, they were in full sight from the city of Jerusalem. As they came closer, the crowds started to come together in an attraction. And we read that most of the crowds spread their garments on the road ahead of them. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This was done to honor Jesus as great, as a king, a triumphant person coming into Jerusalem in a time of what was called the Passover. The act of spreading out a garment was one of recognition, loyalty, and support. Carrying palm and other branches was symbolic of victory and success. Look in your scripture. What did the people say? What did they say to him? Hosanna. Different translation, praise be to God, but with the original was Hosanna. It's the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. This comes from an earlier psalm by David. Psalm 118. Part of the Egyptian halal, which means praise. A collection of praise psalms sung at the great Jewish feasts. including the Passover. The main point of the ceremony of the song is to welcome God's deliverer through the open gates into a holy city. And the deliverer received blessings from singers as they approached the house of the Lord. That's what was going on in these psalms. So as Jesus entered during Passover week, thousands of people were gathered there with thousands of Passover lambs brought into the city, later to be killed in use of the observance of the Passover. And this psalm, Psalm 118, would have been on the lips of those people. They would have been singing this psalm as they did the Passover. And now they're saying it as Jesus is riding in on this donkey. Whether the crowd knew it or not, which I believe they did, Jesus being the Son of God, the Lamb of God, He was the Savior of their sins, they sang it. 
They sang it. It was an open adoration of the Messiah. We adore you. We're singing of you. Hosanna. Which Hosanna means save now. It was addressed to the kings. If a king came in, save us king from our oppressors, right? Now they're saying it to the son of God. Save us king from our sins. Save us now. They openly give Jesus the titles that are so appropriate for the Messiah. Son of David. The one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now here's what's incredible. These same people. Just just imagine this, okay? Hosanna. Praise be to the Lord. The one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. We're all excited, right? And then in the flip of a switch, five days later, these same people who are so fickle in their commitment are yelling, away with him, crucify him. (laughs) How can it be? Even when they got it right, there was little hope that it would continue so long because they're so fickle. Why did they change their tone? I mean, why did they change their tone? Why did they go from Hosanna, praise be the name of Jesus, to away, crucify him? What changed in between there? Be careful because it's the same thing that changes us. See, they expected a national leader, a political leader, somebody that was going to save them from Rome. Maybe restore Jerusalem and their nation to its former glory. Back of with David when he ruled, right? But he didn't. And so they turned on him. Oh, you're not, you're not going to restore this nation? Crucify him. You're not going to give us what we want? Crucify him. What do we expect Jesus to do in our lives? If you came here this morning expecting something, what did you expect? Are you a Christian for a certain reason? Are you expecting something out of that? Were you at a, maybe a youth conference at some point in time and the speaker up front was like, Jesus is going to do this in your life and he's going to do this in your life. You're like, well, if he's going to do that in my life, I'm all in. Because if it's all about you know, making me a better person or making me rich or, or making me happy or making my kids happy, make my kids obey, if that's what Jesus does, I'm all in for Jesus. But what happens when you aren't happy? What happens when things don't go your way or you don't make the money you thought you were going to make or you got fired from your job or your wife leaves you or your husband leaves you or your kids are rebelling? I thought Jesus made everything better. Will you turn to? Is that your expectation? Is that why you call Jesus your master and your Lord, your savior? Did you really think he's going to make your life simple and pain-free and your kids would be number one in everything? Let me ask you this. I'll help you on this. It's a little quiz. What was the mission of Jesus? Do you remember the beginning of the sermon? To seek and save those who are lost. The mission of Jesus Christ was to come here to find us and save us from our sins. He didn't come here to make you happy. He didn't come here to help you find that job. He didn't come here to make your kids non-rebellious or to make your relationship and your marriage perfect. He didn't come to do that. He came to save you from your sins. Now, can Jesus help you in all those other things? Absolutely. But that wasn't his mission. He can do those things. He can help you, yes. He will walk with you during those times, yes. That's not his mission. 
when the crowds realized that Jesus would not give them what they wanted out of life, they turned. They turned. But do we do the same? Do we praise God on Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, and we go out and do something that's really ungodly? It's so easy to get caught up in the crowd, the hype, the excitement. I don't know if you've ever been to maybe, maybe a Christian concert. Pick one of your favorite groups that are out there. You've been to that concert and you get so excited. You walk out of there. Maybe you just went and saw a movie. Maybe you saw um, I Can Only Imagine or God's Not Dead or a movie like that. And you walk out of that theater and you're, like, you're so pumped. You're so fired up. Maybe you were at a youth conference or retreat. You're at Kalahari and you walk out of there and you're like, I'm so fired up. And then what happens over the next couple of days? We run into a wall, don't we? And we start to maybe get a little fickle, a little uncommitted, lacking devotion in following our master. Because we thought our master was going to do something amazing. He did. That should remind you every Sunday he did something amazing. He gave us something amazing. His grace. Who is Jesus? I mean, how would you answer that? What, what, would, what would you have done in that moment? Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus your Savior? C.S. Lewis once said this, and we'll put this quote up there. You must make a choice. Either this man, referring to Jesus, is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, kill him for a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Which you must choose. Was Jesus a madman? Was he crazy? You read the scriptures, he's nothing close to mad. He is the most sane person we can read about in scriptures. Matter of fact, he went to those who were crazy, those who were demon-possessed, and healed them. He spoke with authority, control of every kind of situation, including those which seemed out of control and chaotic. He was under control. He's Jesus. He's the Son of God. And he came riding into Jerusalem to proclaim his title. He is the Messiah who saves us. Do you believe this? Is Jesus your Savior? Two questions this morning. I'm going to ask uh, the worship team to come on in. But two questions I want to ask you this morning because they both really matter here from where you go today. Because today would be the day that we would be throwing our cloaks down and our palm branches down, welcoming in the Prince of Peace. We would be so excited about Jesus entering our city. We would be saying, he is the Messiah, he is the Savior, he is the Son of God, Hosanna. That's what we would be proclaiming, right? That would be today, Palm Sunday. And here's the thing, is he your Savior? Have you confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord? Have you made that profession? Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. We've all, we're all lost. We're all sinners. And he came to save us. Has he saved you? Have you confessed with your mouth? Do you believe that? Have you 
gone to God in prayer and said, God, forgive me for my sins. Save me from these sins. If you have, then he has saved you. And you call yourself a Christian. That was the first question. Here's the second question. I've reversed them, but is Jesus now your master? He saved you, but is he your master? We call him Savior and Lord. When he is your Lord, he is your master over you. And when he gives you a command to go fetch a donkey, will you go get it? If he's your Savior and he saved you, and now he is your Lord, we want to be obedient to him. He didn't come to make your life happy. He came to make you holy. And through the work of the Holy Spirit working in you, he helps you be obedient. In those days when you don't feel like being obedient, then you need to be praying. God, help me to be obedient today because I don't feel like it. And I know my feelings should not rule me. It's my faith. I want to encourage you today. If you've not done so, confess your sins to holy God. Make him your savior. And if he already is your savior, today make him your master, your Ask him, Lord, what is it that you want me to do for you today? Something mundane, something small, something minute, whatever it is. God, I want to do it for you. Because God, I know you didn't come here to make me happy. You came here to save me. Thank you for saving me. What can I do for you? What can I do for you? Would you stand, please? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. And I thank you, Lord, for this time we've had together here this morning to worship you in song and in scripture and in truth and prayer. But God, more importantly, I thank you for a reminder that you came to seek and save those who are lost. That's all of us. Praise God that we've, many of us in here this morning, we are saved. God, I don't know if 100% of us in here are saved. For that reason, God, there's somebody in here this morning that needs you that needs to be saved from a life of bad choices and the consequences of these choices today we confess our sins to you a holy God asking you to forgive us because you are God who will forgive us cleanse us from all this unrighteousness so God I thank you for the forgiveness you offer to us God, for all of us in here who can humbly say, Jesus has saved me. God, today we want to say, we want you to be our master, our Lord. You want us to go fetch a donkey, we'll fetch a donkey. You want us to throw our coats down on the ground for you to walk on, we'll throw them down. God, help us not to be be like the crowd who one day praised you and the next day cursed you. Help us to every day praise you. And on those days when you're not feeling good and we might want to get a little angry with you, help us be honest with you and share that with you. And then remind us of your love for us and help us through those tough times. Because you are an awesome God. God, we want to worship you in song. We want to sing to you now, Lord, in that name we pray.